Luke 23, verses 26 to 32. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. But if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with them. I would like us uh, to consider together this um, theme, uh, walking to Calvary. It wouldn't have been a normal journey on the Jewish feast days for this to happen. But there it was uh, taking place. This uh, unusual um, parade taking place through the city of Jerusalem. At the head of it, there's six soldiers, a centurion and his five men. Behind them, there's Jesus carrying his cross. Beside him are two other criminals carrying their crosses. Behind them a crowd of individuals mainly women probably um, and they are uh, crying. They don't have far to walk. There's only three quarters of a mile between where Jesus had been taken by the soldiers and getting to the cross. It's probably a walk that you would do in ten minutes in a normal day. For some reason, we're not told why, Jesus couldn't carry the cross the whole way. Even a very short distance was too much for him. As I said, we're not really told why he couldn't carry it, but it's assumed that it was because he was too weak to carry it. That the experiences he had had in the 
preceding hours, since he had been arrested, had uh, drained him of his physical strength. I mean, Paul does tell us, doesn't he, that Jesus was crucified in weakness. And so there he is. If that's what happened to him, his strength gave way. Maybe he fell down. But the soldiers, well, they had their task to fulfill. And therefore they grabbed the first person they saw and told him to carry the cross. And that man, as we can see from verse 26, is Simon of Cyrene. I'd like us to think together about uh, people sharing the walk with Jesus. And there are three headings, really. first one is sharing the privilege of Simon. And then, secondly, there's sorrow, the pity of the woman. And thirdly, the surprise, the criminals. Where's Barabbas? So there's Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is near modern-day Tripoli in Italy, sorry, North Africa. He would have been up in Jerusalem for the Passover. He's a, a devout Jew, and he's there to worship God and give him thanks for the great deliverance that um, God had given to his people centuries before at the Exodus. We could imagine that Simon would probably have prayed for a blessing as he went up to the Passover. The highlight of his year. How long did it take him to get there? We don't know. But there he is. He's there. Passover was the day before. He, Simon would have had a Passover meal with family and friends on the preceding night. And now he's looking forward to the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. He has stayed somewhere outside the city, but he's now coming back into the city. Couldn't have stayed too far outside the city, because anybody keeping the Passover had to live, had to stay within the city boundaries. But even as Jesus and his disciples had gone to the garden, Simon would have been staying somewhere in near Jerusalem. Of course, Simon has been the object of what we could call spiritual detective work. 
because he is an interesting character, although the only time he's mentioned in the Bible is in connection with carrying the cross of Jesus. But Mark tells us in his account of the of Simon's activity, he tells us the names of his sons. It says that his two sons were called Alexander and Rufus. The implication being that Mark expected his readers to know who they were. Alexander and Rufus, Simon's sons. Church tradition tells us that the Gospel of Mark, which he wrote with the help of Peter, was probably first sent to the church in Rome. When we turn to Romans chapter 16, we find reference made to Rufus. And not only to a man called Rufus, but also to his mother, whom Paul describes as his mother and mine. So people put all that information together and they just conclude that Simon from Cyrene that somehow or other he got converted. So did his wife. And somewhere along the, the line they helped Saul of Tarsus. Eventually they went to Rome. And that's where the sons were when Mark wrote the gospel. Whatever we make of the spiritual detective work wouldn't have entered Simon's head the day he got up that morning, would it? We don't know, was it his first time at the Passover? Or had he been there many times? Because Jews were meant to go there every year. If he had been there before, maybe the Passover on the previous day was just the same as all the previous ones. Nothing unusual happened. But anyway, what does Simon tell us? Well, a few suggestions to make. He's an example, isn't he, of a man who meets Jesus without seeking for him? Isn't that extraordinary? I do think the detective work is correct, mind you. But he is a man who seeks Jesus, who meets Jesus without having sought him. And that happens, doesn't it? It may not be what we are normally used to, but it does happen. People just are making their way through life, just doing whatever their life brings them, their job and their family and so on. And they may not have thought about Jesus very often. In fact, they may not have thought about him at all. And all of a sudden, 
they just hear about him in one way or another. Maybe hear a Bible verse or read a tract or bump into somebody who tells them about Jesus. And right away, the lights go on and they get it. And they don't have to be told twice. Once is enough. And they embrace the Savior there and then. I mean, there's people like that in the Bible, isn't there? I mean, how often had Matthew thought of Jesus? He probably got that particular day when he met Jesus and was rubbing his hands with anticipation of how much tax he would gather. And Jesus just came along to him and said, Follow me. And he did. Even Saul of Tarsus, although he had thought of Jesus, but he had thought of him with complete hatred. Didn't have one good thought about Jesus in his memory. But met Jesus on Damascus Road. Didn't have to meet him twice. Once was enough. So Simon here, in God's providence, he gets as close to Jesus as it's possible to get. And it's good to know that God does that many times. Who knows how often today he's done it? All over the world. It would be wonderful to know if somebody in Inverness today just became a believer, say at quarter past twelve. And that until that I hadn't even thought about it. I mean, God can work in mysterious ways, marvelous ways, incredible ways. Just open blind eyes in a second, persuade their hearts in a second, make them new creatures. His amazing grace. I mean, some of us are not converted yet. And we've heard about Jesus, or you've heard about Jesus many times. And the obvious question regarding that is, how many times do you have to be told about him? Some people get one opportunity and they take it. So Simon's an example of that, I think. Simon also 
tells us the difference the cross makes in somebody's life. He's a real picture of that. What difference does the cross make to somebody? Once they've experienced it, the cross of Jesus. Well, it makes them head in the opposite direction, doesn't it? I mean, there's Simon, and he's coming in from the country. We could say he's heading to the city centre. There's Jesus with his cross. He's going in the opposite direction, out of the city to Calvary, because it was outside the city wall. And Simon, when he felt the hand of the soldier, of the soldier on his shoulder, and saw his pointing to the cross to pick it up, he suddenly found himself walking in a totally different direction. And is that not what the cross does to anyone who meets the Savior that was on it? The message of the cross is life transforming, life changing. The effects are so dramatic, it's almost like going in the opposite direction completely. And it doesn't make much difference to the person who actually embraces the cross, whether there's anybody else going with him. He's discovered the difference the cross makes in his life because it turns him round and heads him on another path. And that's what Simon found, literally, when he changed direction on that particular day, he started walking to heaven. The cross made that difference for him, the cross of Jesus. And that's the difference it makes in everyone that believes in Jesus. It turns them round. That's what repentance means, isn't it? Repentance basically means to go in the opposite direction. <coughs> Before you repent, you're running away from God. Once you repent, you're running towards God. A new way of walking and a new direction to go on. And Simon's a perfect illustration of that. Another thing that we can deduce from Simon's experience here is that Jesus wants us to carry the cross. I mean, who arranged for Simon to carry the cross? I mean, who was in charge of all events? We know a soldier would have grabbed him and said, pick that cross beam up and carry it, but who actually arranged for it? Who's in charge of the precise moment. Well, obviously, God was, and since Jesus is God, he's in charge of, the mo- of the, each moment. And he obviously wanted Simon, literally, to carry the cross. But how, how does Jesus describe the Christian life? 
Well, this is how he describes it in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There, when we're told that Jesus says take up his cross, he's not referring to a difficulty in your life. Or he's not referring to, to somebody at work who makes things hard for you. Carrying the cross only ever had one meaning. Anybody that was taking up a cross knew where they were going. They were heading for, for death. And of course Jesus says that in the next verse. Verse 34 says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. And then he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Jesus wants us to make, in a certain sense, his cross, our cross. Famous theologian once said, the gospel basically is, come and die. And Jesus tells us that the cross, because it brings, in a certain sense, spiritual death into our experience, it means that the old person that we were dies. And a new creature is there. The cross makes us different. We die to things. One of the, at least I think it is, but but my estimation may be totally wrong, but one of the most liberating things I read a long time ago now was by George Muller and he said this there was a day when I died he said this as a young Christian long before he physically died he said there was a day when I died died to self my opinions preferences tastes and will die to the world its approval or censure die to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God I think whatever else we say about that um, choice of Muller's, I think he understood what the cross meant. Die to self, my opinion, 
preferences, tastes and will. Die to the world, its approval or censure. Die to the approval or blame, even of my brethren or friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Simon's experience tells us, doesn't it, that the cross gives us a new identity. Imagine someone trying to describe Simon at this particular moment. Oh, there's the man carrying the cross of Jesus. Is that not the description that's meant to mark all his people? There's the men women, children who've got a new identity and if necessary they're prepared to go against the flow where that flow comes from within them or from someone else something else we can say about Simon is he felt the effects of a very strong influence Well, didn't he? When that soldier's hand came upon his shoulder, Simon really had no choice. Well, he did have a choice. Go and pick up the cross. For Simon to do that meant he couldn't go and take part in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because it made him ceremoniously unclean. He couldn't take part in any of the activities taking place in the, in the religious services of that particular day. But yet the power that gripped his shoulder put all that religious intentions into their proper place. Simon wasn't just a hand of Rome, he felt that day. He felt the power of the God of heaven. But Simon carried the cross of Jesus and went to Calvary. I wonder what he thought. Somewhere along the line, he was converted. He felt the power of this heavenly influence on him. Whether he was converted that day or not, who can say? But it changed his mind. And I don't think it's too much to imagine him saying with Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified unto me and I unto the world. Simon sharing the cross of Jesus was radical and life-changing. As has been pointed out, 
Simon carried the cross of Jesus. But Jesus carried the sins of Simon to the cross. It's a good day for Simon when he met Jesus on the way to Calvary. That's Simon. Then there's the woman, the sorrow, the pity of the woman, there in verses 27 to 31. It was a custom at that time for this to happen, if anything disastrous took place, that there would be a mourning party would appear. An obvious other biblical occasion of this is when uh, Jairus' daughter passed away. And when Jairus and Jesus eventually reached the house, the mourning party had reached there already. The mourning party was not part of Jairus' family. They were just other people from the community who were lamenting there, sharing their sorrow, as it were. When Jesus said that Jairus' daughter was only sleeping, the mourning party started to laugh. So Jesus put them out. But here's another group of women, and they are weeping as they go behind Jesus. I mean, they're not his disciples. I mean, we can see that from the way he speaks to them. But there they are, and they're still weeping over Jesus. What can we say about them? Well, one thing I think we can deduce from their behavior is Sometimes the only appropriate thing to do is to lament, isn't it? Perhaps they were lamenting because of the injustice that had been done. They would have been aware of it. And from that point of view, the arrest of Jesus and the trials of Jesus were a great injustice something to to be appalled at something to weep about something to be distressed about and do these women not say I mean they didn't think Jesus was the saviour come from heaven they just thought he was the the victim of injustice and yet they were lamenting. In every period of time there's reasons to lament. To show what we feel about them. There are things taking place every day that our response should be to lament that they are happening. 
There's not much in life that we can be neutral about. And there are things taking place that should distress us. And therefore these women, there they were, right behind the soldiers. Soldiers weren't lamenting, but they were. And they weren't ashamed of lamenting. They thought something disastrous had taken place. And therefore they lamented. And it may be the case, don't know what you think about it, but it would be good if we lamented as well for much that is taking place. After all, it was the ones who were lamenting that got the attention of Jesus. These um, women, we can compare them with the other walkers that are going along around there. Contrast them with the religious leaders. I mean, they're making their way to Calvary. Because we know that when Jesus got there, there they were determined to ensure that he would be crucified. They're the ones that have brought about the injustice. There's no lamenting with them, is there? Pilate and Herod, they've the ones who've agreed to this fate for Jesus. No lamenting with them. But here's these women. And even though they're not disciples, there's something admirable about them. They cried over what happened to Jesus. I mean, sometimes I can think about the death of Jesus and not be emotionally affected at all. It becomes a kind of doctrinal proposition. I think every time that kind of thing happens, we should have some kind of thing in our mind that says, remember the woman. They wept as they saw him going to the cross. And Jesus, well, as he looks, hears them and looks at them, there's some things we can see about his response. He knew where they came from. I mean, there were apparently a, a million people used to turn up in Jerusalem for the Passover. I mean, these women could have been from anywhere, couldn't they? But Jesus says to them, daughters of Jerusalem. He knew where they came from. And if if he had wanted to, he could have said more details about their present life. Not only did he know where he came from, he knew where they were going. Because he warns them. 
responds to them anyway and says, Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He's talking about what's going to happen in a few decades' time when the Romans are going to, from their point of view, do to all the inhabitants of the city what they actually did to Jesus here. But he knew all about them. Wonder how he said it to them. Don't weep for me, but weep for yourself and for your children. He's not despising their sympathy. But he is pointing out in a certain sense the futility of it. And that there's other things coming in their lives that are more demanding of weeping. Their futures. What's at the end of the journey? Not something to weep about. A Christless eternity. If that doesn't bring tears, what will? But Jesus also kindly, kind of, corrects them. Doesn't he? The reason why they were weeping was because they thought he had no future. But he has a future. He's got a great future. He knows he's got a marvelous future. No one has to weep over the future of Jesus. They were weeping because they were misinformed. They thought he had no future. But of course, he's got the best future possible. He's heading to God's right hand via the cross, of course. But anyway, that's their sorrow. And we should be, if we're Christians, we should be glad that there was somebody there to show some sympathy for Jesus. Because the disciples weren't there. And then there's the criminals. Surprise. I suppose the two of them, nameless people, would be wondering where Barabbas was, their leader. The three of them have been involved together in the insurrection in the city. Since he was the leader, perhaps he had a special cell. And they wouldn't have expected to see him until they found themselves walking down the road to execution. But there's no sign of Barabbas. 
Perhaps they had been told that their leader had been freed. And their common sense would have said to them, well, if somebody's been taken in the place of Barabbas, he must be worse than Barabbas. What kind of man could possibly be worse than Barabbas? But when they saw Jesus, what kind of man did they see? Nothing like a revolutionary. No hint of cruelty. No sign of hatred. They saw a perfect man. The exact opposite of Barabbas. But as we look at them walking down the road, it's rather extraordinary, isn't it, that the lawbreakers are walking beside the one who's going to pay the penalty for lawbreakers. I mean, they had broken the law of Rome by being revolutionaries. They had broken the law of God by being murderers. And there they were, going to suffer their penalty. And who are they walking beside? The lawbreakers are walking beside the one who's going to pay the penalty for lawbreakers. Thankfully, they're not the only two That's going to experience that. As a matter of fact, it is true, isn't it, in a spiritual sense, that the only people that can walk beside Jesus to the cross are spiritual lawbreakers. And these two criminals, well, if anybody knows about somebody paying the penalty for lawbreakers, it's one of them, isn't it, who later got forgiveness these two soldiers well they're also these two criminals sorry they're also failures aren't they their crosses that they're carrying illustrate that their cause was a failure but the cross that Jesus was carrying indicates his achievement. What they had done had come to nothing. What he was about to do was to come to really something. So walking along the road together are two failures and one achiever. Of course, it is possible, I suppose, if we had been Jews there, we would have regarded the two of them as kind of martyrs, fighting for the cause of Jewish liberation. But they had failed in their attempt. But I suppose some people might have regarded them as martyrs. But whatever else we'd say about Jesus, we can never say he was a martyr. 
He deserves far greater recognition than that. I mean, a martyr is somebody who doesn't aim to die, but finds himself caught up in the fact that he or she is going to die. But Jesus, he's not a martyr. He came to die. He's later going to shout about his death. Finish. Achieved. These men had tried to bring about political deliverance from national bondage. But Jesus was going to provide them or others with deliverance from spiritual bondage by paying the penalty for sin on the cross. So these are the ones who walked with Jesus to Calvary. Though some walk wasn't it. Whereas the walk of Simon or the walk of the woman or the walk of the criminals. They had their different reasons for going to Calvary. I suppose we've been walking to Calvary tonight. Because we've just been going with these people. But what are our reasons for going to Calvary? Curiosity. Might even want to go there theologically, but for the wrong reasons. It is possible to be theologically right, but wrong at heart. Can you go to Calvary? Do you admire Jesus as he walks along? If he stumbled? Do you want to follow him there? Into the distress that he's going to experience? The abandonment? The agony of his soul? There's a right reason for going to Calvary, and that's to go there to get forgiveness. It's a wrong reason to go, and that's just to look. You have to go to Calvary to get something, to get pardon, peace, deliverance from our sins, to taste. What the cross signifies, a new identity, a new way to live. It's good to go to the cross and just see what happens there. Happens to us there. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks 
that that short walk from the soldiers' barracks to the cross was a profound walk. Changed the destination of Simon. Maybe it changed the destination of the woman, who can say? Changed the destination of one of the criminals, we know that. It was the road that Jesus chose, the road that would take him to heaven, and strangely, it's also the road that takes us to heaven. Help us, Lord, to walk the way to the cross, not as tourists, but as those who are trusting in the Savior. Granted, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 22 and uh, sing Psalms, verses 28 to 31. The tune is Waddington. Dominion to the Lord belongs, and over nations he is king. The rich of all the earth will feast and worship with an offering. Verses 28 to 31. Dominion to the Lord belongs and over nations he is king the rich of all the earth will feast and worship with an offering all those whose destiny Yeah. 